0: Hi! You're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. Time flies when you're learning super cool stuff. I'm Nate.
1: And I'm Callie. If you're dropping in for the first time, welcome to Curiosity, where we aim to blow your mind by helping you to grow your mind. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back.
0: Today, you'll learn about a study of near-death experiences, how breast milk biopsies could lead the way to early cancer detection, and why employers hire the wrong people.
1: Without further ado... Let's satisfy some curiosity.
0: There's an old story that crosses most cultures and has probably been told for thousands of years. A person who is thought to have just died is miraculously brought back to life and says that she could see her whole life spread before her. Okay, so near-death experiences. These stories are always incredible. Right, and many of them share some themes.
1: Yeah, like bright lights, feelings of warmth, lots of memories, uh, that kind of thing, right?
0: Exactly, yes. Well, researchers have just released one of the biggest and most technical studies on this phenomena, and the results are honestly out of this world.
1: (laughs) We've talked a little bit about this on the show in the past, haven't we?
0: We have, yeah. Other studies have shown that even after a person is officially declared dead, brain activity can often be measured, implying that something is actually going on in there. But this study goes a few steps further. The study was led by researchers at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine in cooperation with a couple dozen hospitals around the U.S. and the U.K. From 2017 to 2020, 567 patients were admitted to hospitals, experienced cardiac arrest, and received CPR. These people became the participants in the study.
1: So these 567 people, their hearts stopped, in other words?
0: Yep. And the thing is, all of them were at one point totally flatlined. Their brain activity was essentially non-existent.
1: So, okay, not only did their heart stop, they were actually dead.
0: And not only that, CPR efforts extended for as long as an hour after the cardiac arrest. So some of them were gone for quite a while. Now, sadly, only 53 of those participants survived and were fully resuscitated. But many of them reported having clear memories while they were clinically dead. Okay, what kind of memories? That is where it gets really interesting. Some of them said it was like they experienced every memory they'd ever had all at once, and were able to look at them through some sort of moral lens.
1: So, like, they were kind of analyzing how they lived their lives?
0: Sort of, yeah.
1: Huh. Okay, would these visions be categorized as, like, hallucinations? Were they dreaming?
0: Well, actually, no. Uh, A good portion of them were monitored using EEG while they underwent CPR. And around 40% of them had brain activity patterns that were normal or nearly normal, even an hour into CPR.
1: But I thought you said they were flatlined.
0: They were. Doctors generally think that once a brain is deprived of oxygen for around 5 to 10 minutes, it's impossible to bring it back. But some of these participants showed signs of actual consciousness after their brains had been flatlined for 60 minutes. And the activity wasn't the same kind of activity as hallucinations or delusions or illusions or dreams. They seemed to be responding to actual stimulus.
1: This is, this is kind of nuts. My mind is a little bit blown here. Um, so what's going on? Why does this happen?
0: Well, the doctors aren't so sure like what evolutionary advantage this has or even how it could evolve. But in terms of what's going on, it could be that the dying brain sort of takes its foot off the brakes and allows everything to come flooding back all at once. Usually our brains are incredibly inhibited in what it can intake and process.
1: Right, okay, and if we had to deal with every stimulus and every memory all at once, our heads would explode and we wouldn't be able to focus on anything.
0: hmm so if the dying brain causes what they call disinhibition, it allows everything we've stored up to sort of just hit us all at once, which gives us access to dimensions of consciousness we just can't reach in our everyday lives.
1: Okay, wow, so what's next? What do researchers do with this information?
0: That is a great question. The first thing, as with most studies we talk about, these findings are just fuel for more research. But this study gives researchers a glimpse into the human perception of death and could guide development of new resuscitation methods and has implications for how we handle transplants and organ donors and even how we understand end-of-life care.
1: Oh, maybe all those near-death experience stories humans have told for thousands of years weren't just tall tales after all.
0: Sometimes science is stranger than fiction.
1: This next one starts with the story of one woman. She was pregnant with her third child when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. So on top of the stress of her new diagnosis, she had a sudden panicked thought. What if she had cancer while she was still breastfeeding her second child about 18 months earlier?
0: Mm, But can tumors be transmitted through breast milk?
1: So, no, but this mom didn't know that, right? And if moms do one thing, well, it's worry about the health and safety of their babies. So she found a couple of pouches of breast milk that she had pumped and frozen a year and a half earlier and sent them to her oncologist, Dr. Christina Sara. At first, Dr. Sara was like, you have nothing to worry about. But then she had a thought of her own. What if I can detect cancer from this breast milk sample?
0: Okay, do doctors usually test for cancer using breast milk?
1: Nope, never. But lately, cancer researchers have been testing out something called liquid biopsy. This is where they search the body's fluids for traces of tumor DNA and other biomarkers to detect cancer before a tumor is found through the typical imaging.
0: I'm going to guess that the liquid in question is usually blood.
1: (laughs) You are a smart cookie. It is way less invasive than, you know, having to biopsy tissue. And while blood is one of the typical fluids they use, they have also used cerebrospinal fluid, saliva, urine, you know, bodily fluids.
0: Mm. So did Dr. Sara find cancer in the breast milk?
1: Yeah, and this is a bigger deal than it might first appear to be. Why is that? So breast cancer that's diagnosed during pregnancy or just after birth represent as much as 55% of tumors diagnosed in women under 45 years old. That's a huge amount of cancer diagnoses, and it's not super easy to detect.
0: What makes it harder?
1: Um, because during pregnancy and lactation, imaging might not be as sensitive and new moms might not be as sensitive to their own symptoms. And remember the most common fluid they use to find tumor DNA? Blood. Yep. In breast cancer specifically, liquid biopsy of blood can detect tumor DNA when there is a high disease burden, like when the cancer has metastasized. So it's not great at picking up early tumors.
0: Ah, but they can find it sooner in breast milk.
1: Yeah, this one woman's anxiety about her own breastfeeding led to a larger clinical study, which found that breast milk indeed contains enough DNA for a liquid biopsy to detect tumors way before a traditional diagnosis, like months before a tumor is even visible in mammograms, and well before there's enough tumor DNA to make it into
0: the bloodstream. The earlier you find it, the better off you are, right?
1: Totally. This is a huge leap forward in early detection. Obviously, more research is needed, as we always say. They want to make sure that testing breast milk for tumor DNA is actually a useful screening technique, but this has the potential to dramatically improve outcomes for moms diagnosed with breast cancer who already have enough to worry about.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: It is about time you admitted that.
0: Just for the purposes of this exercise.
1: (sighs) Fine. All right, go ahead. I have a feeling this one's going to be easy.
0: You're interviewing candidates for an open position at your company. You're down to two finalists. One of them has a stellar resume and ticks all the boxes. You know they can easily complete all the work you'd need them to do. But in the interview, they were super awkward. They didn't say much. Their eye contact was meh. The other one doesn't have as much of a resume, but in the interview, they were funny, engaging, and whip-smart. Someone you'd be happy to go grab a coffee with. So who do you hire?
1: (laughs) Okay, this is actually harder than I thought it was going to be, and I feel like you're walking me into a trap. But I don't know which way the trap is. So on one hand, you want someone to be able to do all the work, but if they're not comfortable working with other people, then they might not be effective. But on the other hand, if they are able to get along with everyone, they can always learn the skills they need, right?
0: So, who do you hire?
1: I hire the one I want to have coffee with, but who needs to learn the skills?
0: Mm, Well, it's a good thing you are not the boss.
1: No! See, I was tricked!
0: (laughs) The good news is that you're not alone. By some counts, as many as 80% of employers around the world say that one of their top priorities in hiring is finding someone who fits in well with their organization. But that priority could be doing more harm than good.
1: I can't understand what's so bad about wanting someone to fit in with the office.
0: To be honest, I had the same reaction at first. But when you break it down, it makes so much sense. So one of the problems lies in the difference between organizational fit and interpersonal fit.
1: (sighs) Okay, let me see if I get this right. Organizational fit is how they fit into the bigger picture culture of the company, and interpersonal fit is, like, how well they get along with their coworkers.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And if you think about it for even a second, you realize it's probably just about impossible to assess interpersonal fit within the tiny amount of time you spend with someone during an interview.
1: Okay, yeah. Plus, everyone kind of puts on an actor in an interview anyway, so you probably won't know how they actually get along with other people until they've been on the job
0: for a while. Yep, exactly. But it's so tempting to hire someone you like, right?
1: I mean, yeah. I said I'd hire someone because I wanted to have a coffee with them, and that was just
0: make-believe. But it's worse than that, because when we start making those subjective judgments about who we think we like better, then our biases start bursting through. I think… I I see what you mean.
1: We tend to like people who are like us, right? And so if we hire based on who we like, we end up with a company of people who are like us, and that seems like it could be a bad thing for diversity.
0: And it's a bad thing for the company. Truth is, even trying to assess how a person's values line up with the company is tricky.
1: So if we can't hire because we like someone, and it's tough to tell how well a candidate will fit into the company as a whole— Then how are employers supposed to hire
0: people? Knowledge, skills, and ability.
1: (laughs) Okay, so you mean the things they actually need to do the job? (laughs) Yeah, that seems uh, somehow so
0: old school. Right, they call it job fit. Literally, how well can the person do the work we need them to do? And if you focus primarily on that, you have a better chance at not only finding the people who can move the company forward, but you increase the odds of hiring a more diverse staff.
1: So, people who aren't just like the boss, in other words. But what if none of them get along?
0: Researchers say it's more important to focus on making sure everyone gets along once they're hired, rather than trying to guess who's going to get along during the hiring process.
1: I mean, all of this seems so obvious, so why is it so difficult to pull off?
0: Lots of reasons. But humans are social creatures. We want to be around people we like. And if we're in a position to hire someone who seems like they'd be a good friend, we'll justify hiring them even if they're not qualified.
1: Okay. So now that I know this, can I be the boss?
0: Well, you're a great interpersonal fit and a good organizational fit, and you have the skills, but no.
1: Hey! (laughs) Let's
0: recap what we learned today to wrap up. In a broad study, patients revived after cardiac arrest reported vivid memories and conscious experiences from the time they were clinically dead, challenging the idea that brain activity ceases irreversibly shortly after the heart stops beating. The findings suggest that the dying brain may enter altered states of consciousness and perception that warrant further study.
1: A study found breast cancer tumor DNA can be detected in breast milk through liquid biopsy months before conventional diagnosis, opening the door for milk analysis to be used as an early breast cancer detection method in postpartum and breastfeeding women.
0: When hiring, companies should pick people based on whether they have the skills to do the job, not whether they seem like someone the boss would want to grab a coffee with. Otherwise, you end up with a workplace full of clones who think and act the same way. To build a diverse and successful team, Researchers say employers should focus on if they can do the work, then help them fit in once they're hired. Curiosity Daily is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Discovery. You
1: can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we would love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.